This is a podcast from The Times, sports newspaper of the year. Hello and welcome to The Game, an in-depth look at the week in football. And with some major action ahead this week, we're going to be looking forward as well as back. But given the insanity that was the fourth round of the FA Cup with a ridiculous amount of uh, upsets, we need to start there. And to do that, I am joined this week by Rory K. Smith, James Ducker, and Tony Cascarino. Let's start at Oldham. Rory, I want to start with you uh, because I was just kind of struck when when, when I saw the lineup. I thought, like, wow, uh, Brendan is extremely confident and Oldham must really be rubbish. I was slightly surprised by the lineup. I think it was it was praiseworthy that that Rogers obviously decided that it was a good opportunity to get that front four, Sterling, Barini, Suarez and Sturridge playing together against what I think he would have hoped would have been relatively sort of kindly opposition. And I, I think that was fair enough. But the, the problem that he had was that there was no sort of commanding presence in midfield and there was no, no one able to cope with the, the physicality, the predictable physicality of Oldham's attack, which meant that that front four really struggled to get into the game, even as Liverpool kind of put the pressure on in the last 20 minutes, 25 minutes, half an hour. Suarez was, and, and Sturridge were still largely kind of superfluous to the game. And I think the problem was that, that Rodgers maybe underestimated, or maybe it wasn't that he underestimated Oldham, he maybe overestimated how Liverpool's players can cope with physicality. The, the problem, I suspect, wasn't with the, the attacking nature of the lineup; it was the, the type of players he had further back. Cass, do you, do you agree with this? Is it really down to the players further back? And does it strike you kind of weird that if you are going to try this formation, um, maybe this isn't really the best game in which to try it? Um, no, it wasn't the best game, uh, for starters, Gab, because um, their formation and the way they played, their style was so predictable that they got it out wide, they got it in as quick as they could, they had a big centre forward in Matt Smith that would just attack things, they had another forward alongside him, they stayed up front together, how many flick-ons between Skirtle and Quartes, they were in heading battles, dual battles between them and things were dropping around the 18-yard box and Liverpool was so deep as well that their tactics was obviously going to be that you, you'd want to get your team higher um, the, the forwards for me for Liverpool were very all hit and miss you know all players that could turn on a moment of magic yeah Suarez Sturridge could do an individual thing Sterling was a similar thing Barini all looking to do individual bits of magic but they didn't look like a team gelled together in knowing what they were trying to do first of all that to try and stop the opposition doing what they were doing which was getting the ball forward very quickly and getting in from out wide which Liverpool really lost the momentum for, for me in that in the way they started uh, in the fashion they started the game um, and Brent Brendan Rodgers has to take a huge responsibility to that because when you play against weaker opposition and players are not as good as you, the last thing you want to do is give them a bit of momentum in thinking they can get something from the game. And Oldham clearly did. From very early on, they believed that they could get something by the manner they were playing. Um, Ducker, much has been made of the fact that uh, Oldham, you know, they're 
they're a League One side. Dickov had, I guess, a one point from eight games leading up to this. There's rumors that he's going to lose his job. Um, should this change things? Just, I mean, I'm not asking you to judge Oldham. I'm assuming you haven't seen that much of them this season to decide whether Dickov should stick around. But uh, a win like this, should it? Should we find it surprising that he's going to lose his job given that they've been poor in the league? Well, I, th- I think I mean they're obviously the the, the, uh, the chairman's been looking at the situation for you know some weeks and probably thought that um, Oldham would go out and it'd be a good opportunity to uh, part ways. Obviously, it's not transpired that way, and I think he described it himself as an awkward situation he's now in. I think he would be unwise at this stage to remove Dickoff. Uh, I'm not saying it'll. I'm not saying that the result will will definitely have a uh, you know be, be a catalyst for Oldham, but you know you you would think that the. Um, the wind would be, you know, in the sails now, and and uh, I'd certainly, and personally, I would stand by um, Dickoff for the next, next next few games and see what that see what that brings in it. And if if this result does just lift the players and, and have a bit of a, a positive positive impact um, on the league form, then then that'll be great. You know, if it, you know if. You know, I can appreciate it's a difficult situation for him. Though one one win and eight isn't great, but um, but you know, you, you often see season season to seasons turn on um, on on great, unexpected, often spectacular results. And I think it would. Um, I just think it would it would be um, it would be very unwise, really, at this stage to remove him. Right. Um... What's weird to me is that it looked to me like Liverpool were, were getting sort of some momentum there. Uh, you get this result, and they've got away trips now to, to Arsenal, and, and then they, they and that's a midweek, and then uh, they take on uh, uh, City. Um, is there a risk here that the, the, the wheels might all of a sudden come off if, if they lose the next two games? And also, just going back a minute to the formation that he played with, with Suarez, I guess... Theoretically, at least behind uh, the, the the front three or, or behind Sturridge, anyway, is this something that we're going to see again, and we, or we sh- should see again? Yeah, well, I, th- I think in terms of that one, I think I think to me it looks like, and, and it's, it's different on paper to how they actually combine in real life. I guess, but on paper, yeah, it looks like the the best way to get to get Liverpool's best team on the pitch is to play that sort of four-two-three-one with with Suarez in a free role behind Sturridge, and then then Sterling and Barini wide. I, I, I guess Barini could be replaced by Coutinho if, if they sign him in the next couple of days. Wait, sorry for oh, jump in here a second. Um, that implies then, since he's not going to drop Joe Allen, Allen and Jerry uh, in front of the back four and Lucas watching from the bench, yes? I, I wouldn't be so certain that he won't drop Allen. Allen's, Allen's been in, out, in and out of the side in recent weeks. He's had a difficult start to his Liverpool career, Joe Allen. Some would say he looks a little bit out of his depth. I, I think it's too early to write him off. But no, I, I don't think Allen is necessarily... Uh, a mainstay of that team. I think I think you'd probably expect Lucas and Gerrard to be the the two in the in the four two three one. In terms of whether the wheels have come off, I think it's probably too early to say whether the wheels have ever been put on. Liverpool have been up and down this season. They've had a good run recently after a bad run. They've now got a difficult run of fixtures, as you say. They've had United, Norwich obviously provided a bit of respite, but then it's um, Arsenal away on Wednesday and then then City away. 
that's a difficult period for them. I don't think many people would expect them to win either of those games. They'd be they'd be pleased. I would, I would guess to draw both of them. But what Liverpool can, I guess, take take solace in is that their end for the season, kind of from March onwards, is, is is slightly more kindly. They've had this weird sort of scheduling where they've had clusters of really difficult games at the same time, then then runs that look more sort of favourable. They've not always taken advantage of that. Liverpool have to get through the next couple of weeks and then they can try and build again. But I mean, I don't, I don't think the, the idea that Liverpool could challenge for fourth or anything like that is, is fanciful anyway. I think what Liverpool have to concentrate on doing is finishing as high up as possible and I suspect that means six. Let's move on to uh, Ellen Road, uh, Leeds and, uh, and, and Tottenham. Uh, hey, Obviously, Leeds, historically big club, and then they're doing all right in the championship. So you could say, well, this wasn't as huge an upset. But I kind of thought it was, Cass, given that, you know, Becchio was out. You figure that for Leeds, promotion is probably more of a priority. Um, and I thought Tottenham really just never got off the ground. No, they were second best, Gav. I mean, they played some neat and tidy football at times. Gav Bell would come alive every now and again. Lennon sort of switched sides. Lad Brown in midfield, Michael Brown. Well, he just outbowed. I mean, Scotty Parker has really is that's his game, you know, matching the opposition, being tight, making it hard for players when they're on the ball. Michael Brown did it to an incredible level. I just thought, and I don't say this too often in football because I think it can be over, over uh, hyped. Uh, I just thought they wanted a bit more. Paul Leeds absolutely just wanted it a little bit more and had a bit more on edge about them. Where Tottenham, even afterwards, I felt, well, we got knocked out. You know, it we, we well, didn't quite happen for us, but we got knocked out. Um, Ducker, I, I want to get you on this because obviously uh, he really has two senior centre forwards, Defoe and, and Adebayor, and uh, uh, they were both unavailable, um, which... He meant that obviously he had to you know adapt and with, with different players. There's a few days left in the transfer window. He's he's every indication is that he won't go and, and sign a striker at least if you believe what he says. Is this a mistake? Do you do you really realistically need at least three centre forwards, or can you get by with some sort of you know Dempsey Sigurdsson taking turns up front? I think it depends what type of forward you you have. Gavin. I mean, I, I think if you look at someone like City. They've got they've got four experienced, you know, quite, you know, I mean, like Jaco, Tevez, Aguero, Balotelli. They they would all expect to start. Whereas I think if you look at um, somewhere like United, you've got obviously Rooney and Van Persie would expect to start, and uh, supplemented by two two much younger players in, in Welbeck and, and Hernandez who I would say are easier to rotate I think with Defoe Adebayor Dempsey you know I think all three of those players are going to be expect, expecting to play each, each week and and if say you signed a fourth you know and, and all of them are available I think you could potentially be kind of running into you know selection issues there you know I mean obviously that would be Villas, Villas Boas's um, you know um, job to manage, but I mean, we have, we've obviously seen um, some of the difficulties he, he's had um, with that in the past at Chelsea. So I can understand the logic for not um, for not uh, for not for not for not going down down that route. And uh, you know, he, I'm, I'm sure he would have looked at that game and thought, you know, a front four of of Lennon and Bale out wide with Sigurdsson behind Dempsey. You know, even with Dempsey playing slightly. Um, Slightly, um, for, well, playing up top as opposed to a bit deeper would be enough to get beyond Leeds. 
All right, now I checked, and and seven um, non-league teams since 1945 have gotten to this stage of the competition. Um, but only one has gotten to the stage of the competition while beating a top-flight team, and that is uh, that is Luton. I find it absolutely remarkable and also just kind of sweet because given that I'm old, like you, Cascarino, uh, and unlike uh, Rory and, and Ducker, um, I remember Luton when they were in the top flight. In fact, you might have even played against Luton in the top flight. Yeah. Have you? Yeah, I've, uh, not in the top flight. I've played against Luton when they've had some really good sides. Um, now, obviously, you, you, know, you look at this, and, and, and Norwich, Norwich had a, a lineup that was a bit of a bit of a mixed bag mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of starters and and reserves. But then again, he does rotate a lot. So, mm-hmm. was this a case? Was this like sort of this kind of? It was sounding incredibly cheesy. Is this basically the magic mystique of the cup? Blah blah blah. Especially with that whole sideline of of, of Rendell, the, the striker who comes on, and <laughs> you know the issues he had. Um, I mean, is this why we watch? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, first and foremost, Gab, you know, the, the game in itself, Norwich against Luton, geographically, they're not that far apart. Luton have a huge fan base. You know, they are a conference team, but they will, you know, would have took six or 7,000 there. They're amazing atmosphere, packed to Carroll Road. The, you know, players, Luton players get lifted, and every minute that goes by in that game, they, they feel like they've got a slight, a bigger chance, you know, and they, they've kept... And, you know, Norwich are a team you can beat, you know, and, uh, many premiership teams have done it this year they're a side that you can get I think they're just the belief in what all the cup is about like you said the mystique and Luton have been a team that's really even though they've been in the conference for a number of years have been at the top of the conference they're every year they're, they're, they lose the, they're losing the playoffs yeah they're losing the playoffs they get, they're so close but they really run like a, a league two team league, league one they are you know uh, financially they're, they're a far better club than they were a few years back they've had some very difficult moments but it was one of them games that you just looked at and you thought packed house at Carrow Road Luton taking a huge you know fan base up there they'd have been loving every moment the fans would edge the players onto a new level and the, the players gave absolutely everything as you'd expect in a, a glorious day that it was for them um, was it that big a surprise no, I spoke about it on Saturday that I thought Luton could get something because I, I know a little bit. I live close to the area. I live very, very. My my partner's from Luton, and all her family are Luton fans. So I sort of know quite a bit about the club, and they've had a decent side. And the lad Buckle's done a really good job there. They're they're gradually, you know, it, it's a big surprise on the outside, but I don't think it was that big a surprise to a lot of people in football, especially like you touched on. Norwich did change a side. Uh, around quite a bit which gave Luton a little bit more added chance of getting a result uh, Ducker, is there a bit of a parallel here between uh, um, Luton, um, what they achieved, and uh, and Bradford reaching the League Cup final? Given that you know these are two teams that were top flight, at least in my lifetime, uh, maybe even in yours, uh, and uh, and now through financial mismanagement and, and whatnot, you know they're way down the pecking order. Does that resonate differently than than say as as, as I mentioned before, you know Sutton United beating uh, uh, Coventry back in? In '89, yeah, I mean, there's this the fallen giants is obviously the wrong phrase, the wrong phrase, but you know, they they once they were they were once um, you know much bigger clubs than they kind of are now, and I think there's there's still a you know cachet is the wrong thing, but they're you know they're they're, they're not just you know any other kind of. 
um, lower league team. They're, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but whenever I hear the name Luton, I've got I, I have this kind of quite soft spot for them. I just remember, was it was it Steve Foster with that centre half with the arm, but with the headband that he always used to wear? Is it Steve Foster or Craig yeah, Foster? No, it's yeah. Steve, Steve Foster. Steve, wasn't it? Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. The thing is, I think the difference for me between the Bradford, the Bradford result and the and um, and what Luton achieved was that. You know, Bradford did that over over two legs against, you know, strong Villa teams in both of those games. I thought that was a pretty impressive achievement, whereas we've obviously been talking about the Premier League, Premier League sides feeling weak, weaker sides. Now, that, that really was a weaker side that Norwich fielded, and, and I would say that, you know, there are teams at the bottom, you know, bottom and middle of the Premier League or teams that have just come up from the Championship who, who really, you know, might just about be able to get away with it in the Premier League once, once you know, the top 11 players are put out, but, but beyond that, they're not that strong and I think that's the case with, with Norwich I thought I thought the team that they put out was, was resolutely a championship team so um, but but take nothing away from um, I don't want to take anything away from, from Luton you know that they um, it, it was a, it was a, a quite remarkable achievement particularly uh, have a particular kind of um, I think it was particularly emotive that you know Scott Rendell should score as well, given given what happened with um, with his uh, his premature son a couple of years ago. So the, the other upset that wasn't, but but might have been, it was very very close. Uh, was at Griffin Park, Brentford uh, uh, against Chelsea. Now, again, Rafa Benitez will undoubtedly get stick for this. I was struck by the fact that this to me really did seem old school. This to me seemed. You know, the, the Premier League side, still a, a pretty strong squad that kind of went in there. And he looked to me like almost unprepared for what, what to mm. expect. Um, in term, you know, it wasn't a great pitch. Uh, Brentford played with, with tremendous intensity. Mm. And Chelsea just kind of didn't really wake up. No. And let's face it, Chelsea's squad, and we talked about you know other clubs not using their, their best available players, but Chelsea have got a squad that oh. their second team will be a fantastic side. Um didn't stand up, didn't match them. Well, I, I played for Gillingham against Everton uh, in the late 80s, and Everton had a fantastic side. We took them to two replays to effectively play three games against Everton. That Everton team went and won the Cup that year. Uh, what did we do? We matched them in every department physically. We were organised. If you have them two things in your corner, you've got half a chance to get to the Premier League team. Because if you're organised and you match them, now you're not letting them do what they can do and be very good at. And Chelsea didn't get... Le- Brentford totally tried to disrupt Chelsea and they didn't like it you know good players don't like to be closed down so quick and they think they earn the right to be able to oh I'm good enough to you know to have the ball and I can show what I can do so when they get there some guy in a lower level who gives who absolutely disrespects the fact they're not going to allow them to do what they want to do they, they frustrates them they give the ball away not so easy as they normally would so when Brentford's tactics were that if you say the first 45 minutes they absolutely went for the jugular against Chelsea and they didn't like it and it took Chelsea nearly to the end of the game to get back on level terms that's what you do when you're a lower league team you have to try and be first of all organised and secondly match them physically to stop them doing what they can do Brentford did it brilliantly Roy did um, did did our mate Rafa kind of drop the ball a little bit on this one because just on the back 
of what of what Cass said. I only seem unprepared, but I'm also kind of imagining poor Oscar with with people sort of getting in his grill, and he's looking who can I pass to, and he sees a converted left back on one side in, in Bertrand um, up front, and he sees the void that is Fernando Torres, and out wide it's freaking Marco Marin who might as well not be there. Um, yeah, I think I think Oscar was probably the wrong selection for that game again. I think it's it, I mean, it maybe was Benitez, just as Rogers did, kind of under un, not underestimating, but maybe misunderstanding the nature of the challenge. Cass is quite right to say that Chelsea's second string is is a very good side. I, I, it's harsh. It's a bit harsh to, to blame Benitez, I guess, for the fact that he had to play Ryan Bertrand on the left wing and Marco Marin on the right wing, when obviously Marin. He's a right winner. He's a German international right winner. You just stop so, it with this marrying German international, okay? It's it's not it, it's not 2010 anymore. The guy arrived in the summer. I'm not blaming Rafa for signing him. Rafa didn't sign him, okay? The guy comes in the summer. He's terrible. He does nothing. He's he, he was horrible last season as well, which is why they got him for for very little. I mean, I, I realize you have to get him playing time at some point, but goodness, bring him off the bench when, when, when you're 3-0 up or something. Well, I think that's absolutely right, Gab. I, I never disagree with you, as you know, because I have such respect for your opinions. But what I would say is that whilst Cass is right that, that Chelsea's second string should be strong, if you look at it, they, they do have quality in depth, but they don't, they don't have numbers and they don't have, have a spread of quality. They're, they're very, very heavy in certain positions, very light in others. And I think that, that was kind of what Benitez's selection suggested. Rafa's in a position... At Chelsea, and obviously, I am—I will admit to a bias where he can't do right for doing wrong. I looked at that that, that side that he selected, and I didn't think it was particularly outrageous. Just that I didn't think it was particularly outrageous against them um, the other week when he, he got criticised against Swansea for, for not—I can't remember if he brought Torres on or he brought Bar off or he did something. I don't know. But he, the problem that Rafa's got at Chelsea, just the fans hate him so much, is that everything he does will be like, oh, well, you shouldn't do that. He, he, did he bring Astor the Quetta on for Ivanovic against you know, Brentford? And I read on Twitter that it was a like-for-like like change. If you think that Branislav Ivanovic, for Cesar Astor the Quetta, is a like-for-like like change, you don't understand football, to be perfectly honest. They might both be fullbacks. They're very different fullbacks. What, what I would say that Rafa, Rafa dropped the ball on is he obviously hadn't prepared the team properly for what to expect at Brentford. Although I will say that that is the first significant goal Fernando Torres has scored for Chelsea, and that might be quite important. I don't understand. Um, I think one of the, you know, going back to the Brad Jones thing again, I think the, the one mistake was to play Turnbull in goal. I, I don't understand what this obsession is with with dropping the first-choice goalkeeper for, you know, League Cup games or FA Cup games in the early rounds. I, I don't understand what's the problem about just keeping the number one goalkeeper in there Chelsea would have won that game had Petr Cech been in goal I just I, I don't understand I mean I can un- totally understand wanting to give some of the fringe players or those that don't play regularly you know in, in the first team week and week out game time you know they, they should be obviously be capable of doing a job but you know it's not like Petr Cech is going to be It's that time of the year Your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW guarding around for kind of 90 minutes I mean you know a lot of the goalkeepers there a lot of first choice goalkeepers would say they're mm. totally happy playing 50 games a season so James can I just make a point on what you just said there because when I first got to France that was very common the second keeper would play it was like a gesture and Gab might hit me down he might not be down in flames and saying that other clubs uh, countries don't do this but I was quite amazed that when I got to France like the League Cup and the Coupe de France that the keeper would come in the second choice and it was like this is what you get this year you know you're on the bench you're a second keeper but all the cup games you will play and, yeah, and it's, it's come across to this country that's what it's become it's like a gesture the, the idea I guess people defend it by saying that it somehow keeps them keeps them sharp because they're playing the real you know real games quote unquote once in a while but um, I don't know if there's any real evidence of that and to me if you want to win the game uh, and sometimes there is a huge disparity between the number one yeah. and the number two um, it seems I don't know, frankly uh, a very silly thing to do Aston Villa and QPR both out. Uh, QPR, we're going to kind of gloss over because I think Harry is probably happy that they're out, judging from the the, the team he put out. Um, very quick word on on, on Aston Villa, uh, Cass, because I kind of think you know they they didn't want to go out. I thought, <laughs> um, and you know, you, two of your old clubs yeah. facing each other. Um, were you surprised? Um, not by watching Villa in recent months. No, that they could be turned over, and Danny Shitu scores from a set piece, and Villa have seen it. Say that on this podcast, <laughs> and and um, and Aston Villa have conceded so many goals from set pieces that they've they've been in trouble. Um, did he want to lose that game? Absolutely not. He needs a big result. He needs one. After the Bradford episode, Villa fans have certainly been questioning Paul Lambert, like we've, we've heard Rory talk about. Benitez questioned every decision. That's what's happening to Paul Lambert. He's got a massive game this week. You know, obviously in the, in the Premier League against Newcastle, he desperately needed a result in the Cup because the fans are starting to go from giving him back in, still singing his name after being beat 8-0 against Chelsea, still chanting his name. That's slowly and ebbed away they're not quite 
uh, as convinced as they were about Paul Lambert and what's happened in recent weeks. They lost a very, very big and important game for them. Right. Let's let's broaden this out a little bit because I'm interested in um, the, the point you made. We, we had so many upsets. Uh, there's only right now. There's only seven top flight teams um, in the draw. And again, should Chelsea lose the replay to Brentford, there will be only six of um, of 16 teams in in the round of 16 uh, draw, which which I find absolutely extraordinary. I, first of all, can you remember this happening? Before, I mean, I, it probably did, uh, you know, in, in the 19th century, but um, it's kind of weird now, no? I think it's, it's, it's maybe not maybe not to this extent. It, you, you do get years where, and I don't have any facts or figures or anything like that to prove it, but you definitely get years where where more top flight sides sort of fall by the wayside early on than, than others. You get some years where they all make it through and you have United against Arsenal and Chelsea against Spurs in the semis or whatever, but... but this year it does seem to be to be comparatively extreme, and that could be because the, the, the bigger sides and, and you know the Premier League sides aren't taking it quite so seriously. It could be that the, the the lower league sides have got better. It could be that the draws have fallen kindly. That you've had you know I mean Millwall Villa. I, I don't think that even counts as a shock to be honest. That the Millwall passed the Villa out at the den. I, I was there and. And to be honest, I thought I, I thought it was a bit harsh on Villa. I thought after City's equaliser, they held out pretty well. They looked relatively comfortable. Millwall didn't really create any chances. Um, but I don't think that really counts as a shock. Leeds, Spurs, you could kind of see it coming a little bit. Brentford, Chelsea, maybe less so. Oldham, Liverpool, less so. Although once you've seen the the lineups, I think it, it could be indicative of a, of a broader trend. But maybe. Maybe the gap is, is reducing. That's possible, but but it's made it's self-inflicted almost by the Premier League side that that perhaps they're not quite giving the competition the respect it deserves, and they're not preparing properly for what they're going to face in the competition. I wonder whether um, to just just this season, whether the, the desperation to stay in the Premier League is so great, given that the new TV deal. I know it's very cynical and very depressing thought, but given that the new TV deal kicks in. That kicks in at the start of next season and is worth a shed load of money. I just wonder with teams in the bottom half whether the desperation is so great to stay in that they are prioritising the Premier League more than ever this season and that you know any distractions, you know, even a, a successful cup run are totally unwelcome. Yeah, I think that's probably absolutely right. And the other thing I'd say is that um, I think when you speak to players and managers, a lot of them feel that the FA Cup is kind of a release from the pressures of, of day-to-day Premier League work, you know, the day job. And you combine that with, with lower league clubs who are determined to prove themselves, who've got these set ways of playing that can unsettle teams. The one thing that you notice is that when you watch lower league football, you don't get any time on the ball at all. From, and in the Premier League, you get, you get, you know, it's obviously faster than Italy and Spain, so we think. But you get minutes and minutes to sort of compose yourself to take a torch to look what's happening in lead one and lead two you don't you, you, you touch the ball and someone flies into you and I think that unsettles Premier League players especially when they're of the mentality of well this is a bit of a break from, from the real job Cass I certainly share Rory's impression that um, you don't get the same time on the ball in mm. the Premier League that, mm. uh, that there's, in the lower leagues that you get in the Premier League I'm wondering though if that's actually true or if it seems that the Premier League guys look like they have more time on the ball simply because they're a lot more skillful and they think more quickly I don't know are there any stats that actually bear this out in terms of distance covered or, you know I know you love your stats and you're, you know <laughs> well I would always argue Gab that if you take my games when I play for smaller clubs and I played against better opposition I had a little bit of an edge about me. I was even more hungry to get to the guy as quick as I could and make it as difficult as I could. So I, I would always associate with that. 
eleven fold, isn't it? Because every player you're on the more team. motivated because you're playing Could, against. Well, you do. Like you it. have when you're fighting or when you're you know you're in a sporting competition against someone who's top notch, and you know you've got to be better. You've got to improve your game, and you've got to show as much hunger and have that little bit of edge. Edge is massive in sport. I tell you what. One question I would say, Gab, though, if you look back and if it, this weekend's any evidence to go by, is that how good is your second choice? Your second choice goalkeeper. In what level of football would he play? What where would Brad Jones be playing if he wasn't at Liverpool? What would you think? League two goalkeeper, League one goalkeeper. What would you say? Well, I would hope he would be. Uh, a, He's certainly not a Premiership goalkeeper. Actually, well, let's get Ducker and Smith on this because this is this is. I'm always fascinated by the idea of sort of number two goalkeepers and what kind of people are number two goalkeepers. I was in cast before about a conversation I had with the, the guy who runs one of the Premier League clubs who, who said that um, he's always frustrated by the fact that there's people who don't play who make a lot of money and mm. you know he's all for playing a lot of money for people who get the minutes on the pitch, but the guys who who are on the reserves, you know, why should you pay them so much? And if you look at their salary per minute and all this. Hey, Ducker, I, what, A, what level would Brad Jones be playing at? And B, how do you make the right choice with getting a, a reserve goalkeeper? It would seem to me the ideal would be you either have a young guy who's an apprentice or you have a Raymond van der Howe type who's happy to just be a reserve his entire career I think generally speaking that that is due I think to get a to have a situation where you've got a a quality first choice and a quality second choice who is um, you know hot on his heels or the manager's got a serious dilemma as to who to play tree I think the closest situation you've got to that maybe in recent times at the top flight is Stoke City you know Sorensen and Begovic maybe and so you do see there's quite a, there are quite a lot who have probably got quite a few Premier League games over a period of time but are now a bit older as well you see you know late 20s early 30s there's a lot of understudies around that kind of age who are in some cases a bit older so it's a very curious um, situation in the case of um, Premier League number two. There's a huge game coming up in midweek which which we need to to look at. It's Villa and Newcastle. These are two teams, Rory, that we don't generally associate with uh, um, relegation worries, certainly not of late because Alan Pardew has an eight-year contract and uh, and, and a million... um, French players. Um, we'll get to that uh, again in the quick hits. Uh, but is, is this the game that could be a turning point for for, 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 uh, for either one of these two clubs? I, I, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit sort of reticent to start talking about turning points and games that define seasons. So yeah, I mean, if, obviously, if Newcastle win, then it'll give them a boost of confidence. They shouldn't be anywhere near the bottom six, to be honest. Villa really need points because Villa are in serious trouble. It, it, it's maybe not a turning point for the team who wins which does still have a lot to do if the team who loses especially if it's Villa which I think it will be um, will I, I, you, can, you can just sort of see Villa spiralling out of control almost because there's this idea that Lerner's not, not invested in the club which isn't entirely true because he spent 24 million quid somehow in the summer but I've got no idea who he spent it on um, but the problem is the wages they've got yeah, the players that they brought in there's just not a any steal at all to that side they look completely devoid of confidence if they lose to Newcastle they'll, they'll, they'll be rooted in the bottom three and they, they, yeah that it is it could be the beginning of the end for Villa OK since you're mocking Randy Lerner there for what he spent it on he spent it on Bentike, Flar and La, and Latin um who I think yeah, but that's, three pretty no, that's good fine. Benfica was seven, Vlaar was three, and Laos was like one. So that's that's eleven million. What's the other thirteen million? This is this is a figure twenty four million quid that everyone keeps banding around. Who's he spent it on? Holman, El Lamadi, three, three million. 
Okay, what's that add up to? 17. 14 million. Another 10 million. Say, how, how does it up to 14 if it's 3 plus 3 plus 7? Where'd you go to school? Plus 1 for Loughton. Yes, plus 3 for Vlar. You're not counting Holman because he's Australian? Holman was on a 3. Three, there you go. That adds up to 17. On a three, you moron. <laughs> I got you. I'm sure there's others we are forgetting, and I wish this is, these are those times when I wish Peter Lansley were here to. Uh, um, I'm sure if they spent 24 million, they would have spent it on somebody, yes? Well, possibly, but I, I, I genuinely can't think do. But I think the problem is that they've, they've done what a lot of teams do, which they've bought a lot of players when what they actually needed was two or three much better quality players. There's this myth that you can buy quantity and, and, and get results you can't. You need... Villa had loads of, of decent £3 million players, people like Chris Hurd and Kieran Clark and Nathan Baker. They're all decent squad players. They're young, they're moderately promising. They'll all be Premier League players for a while, so to no great level. But what they've done is they've supplemented them with more players of that same quality, that same dearth of quality, when what they needed was maybe one or two players for £24 million quid, £10 million each or whatever, who could... could lift the side beyond that and that's why they're in trouble Ducker just uh, sort of strategically now if, if you're Randy Lerner uh, what do you do I mean Lambert's position's a bit precarious you've got all these kids in do, do, do you try to add to the squad now in the in the transfer window well I think he's he signaled didn't he from early in the month that you know he, you know he, he was low to so you know, it's no good if you it's no good if you if you're indicating that you know you're reluctant to strengthen at the start of the month and then suddenly panic. I think that situation is dire, and I, I disagree with Rory. I know it's only late January, but I think that the 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 game tomorrow night is I think it's big for both clubs, but I think it's absolutely massive for um, for Aston Villa. I think you know they, they they really really do need to win that game, and I just look at the I look at the the players that they've got and. And some of those that are missing or that they've sold, and I just, I just can't really see them putting a, a run of results together. I think they're probably thankful that Reading are playing Chelsea and QPR are playing Man City. Um, you know, the t- two of the three teams below them. All right, enough of this. Let's move on to some quick hits. Now, we've all talked about how fantastic this FA Cup weekend was in terms of upsets. Um, but, Rory, why were ties like Stoke v. Manchester City and Manchester United v. Fulham on television, especially United and Fulham, given that that's going to be the live game next week as well? Um, instead, we missed out on games like, like Luton and, and Brighton Arsenal that we didn't talk about, but I thought was a very good game. Yeah, the, the reason for this is, is fairly obviously that ITV and ESPN are interested in, in ad revenues and obviously bigger audiences mean bigger ad revenues, which means you put on the games that get the biggest audiences and the games that get the biggest audiences are the ones that involve the biggest clubs. I, I, I can understand that on a sort of commercial level, but I think it's deeply disappointing. The FA Cup is about um, romance, especially in the sort of earlier rounds, and it's a real shame that we we got two two ties that, to be honest, aren't even very interesting Premier League games. If, I suppose Stoke City could defend as they thought, they maybe thought it would be Palace rather than than Stoke. Um, but United Fulham was only ever in the, going to end one way, and I think there has to be. It, it annoys me deeply that, that ITV and ESPN market the magic of the cup but do nothing at all to promote it, either by giving us the, you know the games like Luton Norwich or by allowing those teams the TV the TV revenue. It's a 
real shame. And to be honest, if they're going to keep on, keep on doing it, the FA Cup should be on the BBC. Oh, or better, yeah, let's just get rid of the stupid blackout rule and make these uh, games pretty much available to everybody. But hey, I've been arguing that for a long time. But I do think Brighton Arsenal was pretty much a no-brainer. You couldn't have known the way uh, Luton and Norwich is going to go. Norwich could have scored three in the first ten minutes, and it would have been, the game would have stunk. But Brighton Arsenal was, I think, uh, a legit tie. Chelsea have until Tuesday to respond to the FA charge for the now infamous Eden Hazard ball boy incident against Swansea. Rafa Benitez says he feels three games is more than enough. Cass, I'm not going to ask you if you ever kicked a ball boy because I know the answer to that. But what's uh, appropriate punishment here? Uh, certainly three games, I agree with Rafa, is more than enough. Um, I still think the incident was pretty laughable in many, many ways. Um, and I don't really feel that Eden Hazard did that much particularly wrong, apart from handling uh, a ball boy. So... I would I would say just one match would have been f- sufficient for me. So Alex Ferguson reckons that his current quartet of strikers, Wayne Rooney, Robin Van Persie, Danny Welbeck, and Chicharito, are better than the foursome who won the treble. Teddy Sheringham, Andy Cole, Dwight York, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, Ducker, is he right, or are you going to contradict him? No, I, 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 I think it's very difficult to... Um you know, to judge one way or the other, I don't really think that's the point. I think what's what's very interesting is that, like in '99, he's put together a, a, a foursome now who offer great options and uh, very, very different kind of qualities. You've got poachers, all-round brilliance, impact subs, battering rams. I, I think there's, I think there's a real, a real great blend there, uh, and I don't think it's easy to come come by. And he had that in in. Ninety eight, ninety nine, and uh, and it paid huge dividends for them. And uh, I think he's got to somewhere like that situation again now. I actually think these guys are substantially better than uh, the guys in '99, even though those guys um, played out of their skin. But that's just me. Newcastle signed another five Frenchmen because they don't have enough of them. And at the same time, mystery engulfs Fabrizio Colocini, who asked to transfer for personal reasons, but now looks to be sticking around. Um, Rory, what's going on? What, what, what were Colocini's personal reasons for wanting to leave, if you know, and if you're allowed to tell us? It's been, it's been rightfully, I think, uh, sort of couch really carefully when we discuss it. Colatini's wife is, is ill, the file accounts, and that's why he wants to return home to Argentina, which I think is something we can all sympathise with. I I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea that he sticks around till the summer, and then they try to, to kind of find a solution then. But then, I, I, to be honest, I don't know how serious his wife's illness is. It, it's a difficult situation for Newcastle. They seem to be handling it relatively sensibly. Um, it looks like Colatini will, will, will stay until the summer at least, and they might, might do some in then. Um, in terms of the five Frenchmen, Graham Carr has Eurosport and appears to be the only scout in Britain with, with that subscription. Um, so he, he, he's really reaping the benefits. Yander and Bewa from Montpellier is an excellent sign. I'm really, I'm really surprised, with no disrespect to Newcastle, I'm really surprised he's gone to Newcastle the thought that, that Arsenal or Milan or, or, or one of the Champions League clubs would have, would have gone in for him because he is, he is a top quality central defender. Arsenal don't sign top quality central defenders. So, um, no, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point, yeah. I was shocked by Young and Bewa as well and you kind of wonder just how they managed to get all these guys at all these great prices. A fight broke out amongst Arsenal fans at Brighton after some took offense with a banner raised by a fellow gooner suggesting that it was time for Arsene Wenger to make like a tree and leave. Uh, Cass, what's your take on fans and negative banners? Anybody ever put up a nag- negative uh, uh, banner about you? Maybe Marseille, no? <laughs> Cascarino Poutin, no? <laughs> it's probably happened at a few clubs, Cab, yeah. Uh, 
Um, look, if you foul or you don't achieve the goals that your fans expect you to do, is you know win leagues or win cups um, and they're very close to still making the, the top four if they fail that that will still stay there with Arsenal fans they've got the best stadium in the country you know they've had incredibly good sides he lifted the bar so is it okay for them to put banners up well some feel it's okay but that's the feeling if you, you talk you to feel? how do I feel I think that, that that is just what you get if you foul and you don't win do things, you feel the club should remove said banners I, I think if it gets to the ease and uh, should they remove the banners yeah um, so for home games I think the way fans are, are pretty more a bit more of a, a stronger feeling bunch aren't they um, so you know they're, they're a bit more hardcore the away fans should you ban them I don't think it's yeah I, I don't particularly like it but the feeling on the terraces is that Arsenal OK time to pick on a referee again Glenn Whelan on Javi Garcia no red card no yellow uh, Ducker I assume Whelan will be punished by the FA but should they also have a word with Howard Webb and also um, I read in the Times today uh, Whelan's comments about saying that like oh tackles like that are what the English game is, is all about and that's why they watch the Premier League um, is it true is that what the English game is all about is that why you watch the Premier League uh, no obviously it's not um, y- yes he should have been sent off uh, to I, I can't quite believe his defence it was a studs up lunge that uh, uh, should have warranted in his dismissal resulted in his dismissal um, three he won't necessarily um, face um, any retrospective action because I think Harold Webb is deemed to have said that he, he saw it um, uh, obviously he didn't get a uh, the view of it that, that kind of most people did. Um, maybe but, he did, and maybe Webb should face well, retrospective well, I think, action. I think if you actually look at it, it does look like um, it does look like Garcia's right leg is kind of shielding full view of the incident from 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 Webb's angle. Although, to be honest, he kind of lunged and kind of came down came down on Garcia, and that 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 point of the challenge, Webb, if you look at it from his angle, should have been able to um, to see. But obviously, there's this rule, whereas if a referee is deemed to have seen an incident, he's deemed to have dealt with it, and it, unless it's classed as exceptional circumstances, the FA are powerless to act. So, unless they deem that challenge an exceptional circumstance, I think we. And will, will will get away with it, which um, which would be unfortunate. But his whole defence of it was just uh, was just crass, to be honest. Gab got one for you. Didier Drogba, Galatasaray. Uh, please explain. <laughs> Well, Didier Drogba wants to play uh, in Europe, at least briefly. He wants Champions League football. Uh, they're paying him an enormous amount of money. My understanding is that somewhere in the region of uh, 10 million euros a season uh, net um, for the next 18 months. So you're, you're looking at, um, at an enormous uh, amount of money uh, helped by the fact that taxes in uh, Turkey are quite low. From Galatasaray's perspective, too, they're making this investment because they look at this and they've just picked up Snyder and they've got Schalke who they think that, that they can beat. Schalke not doing particularly well. If you think about Real Madrid and Manchester United, they're going to knock each other out, uh, or one, you know, one of those two is going to go out. Uh, one out of um, Arsenal and Bayern Munich are going out. So all of a sudden, you know, you get a pretty favorable draw and, you know, it could be party time uh, at Galatasaray. 
That's all we've got time for this week. It's been fun and it's been real. Thanks to my guests, Tony Cascarino, James Ducker, and the man who's on his way to Egypt, it's Rory K. Smith. You can find us on Twitter to share your thoughts, or you can also email us, as so many of you do each week, at gamepodcast at thetimes.co.uk. And of course, you can go to thetimes.co.uk. You'll find all our news, our views, our web chats, our blogs. My favorite blogger, as you all know, is George Culkin. Uh, sadly, we only get him once a week. Uh, you'll find our all our analysis as well. Uh, and as I said, we're all on Twitter, so and we love it when you reach out, especially Roy. Take care. Bye-bye.